0: Let's ask for God's help as we look at this together. Father, we come to a difficult part of your word, and so we ask you to help us. We've been singing about being more than conquerors, and I pray that as we look at this part of your word, you will show us what it means to be conquerors in this life, through Christ. Open our eyes to see what it means to follow you, And to see what it means to be secure as we follow you. Amen. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 10. Chapters 8 through to 11 are dealing with a series of seven trumpets. And the visions connected to those trumpets. We said last week that chapters 8 to 11 could be pictured like this. Chapters 8 to 9 dealt with God's judgment throughout history. But following on from that, still within the seven trumpets, chapters 10 and 11 deal with the mission of God's people throughout history. Our mission, we saw last week, is that we have a gospel to proclaim. We're to share the good news about Jesus with the world we live in. In chapter 10, that call to proclaim the gospel was pictured, you may remember, as eating a scroll. The point was, John was to take in God's word, he was to absorb it for himself, and then he was to give it out to others. Chapter 10 gave us the call to faithful witness. And now in chapter 11, we're going to see how that call works out in history. We're going to see how things go for the witnessing church. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn to Revelation 11. That's page 1240. And in the large print, 1924. We'll read the whole of chapter 11. John says. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers but exclude the outer court do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles they will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But... After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God "'Fell on their faces and worshipped God, "'saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, "'the one who is and who was, "'because you have taken your great power "'and have begun to reign. "'The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. "'The time has come for judging the dead "'and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, "'and your people who revere your name, "'both great and small.' And for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is God's word. But what does it all mean? Well, the chapter divides into three sections. First of all, John is shown a temple city. Then he's told about two witnesses. Then there's a death and resurrection. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, John is shown a temple city. Look at those verses again. Still in his vision, which we saw last week, John says, I was given a reed Like a measuring rod, and was told, "Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty-two months." The voice telling John these things is the same voice from heaven that spoke to him in verse ten, chapter ten. And John is told to measure the temple of God. It has an altar and there are people in it, worshippers. But what does this building represent? Well, according to the rest of the New Testament, it represents God's people, the church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives among you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Sometimes I realize we refer to the building we meet in as the house of God. But according to the New Testament, the building is not the house of God. We are. We are the temple where God dwells. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to Christians, We are the temple of the living God. There are other examples we could look at in the New Testament. But the point is, since the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, God does not dwell in a special building. He dwells in his people. So here in Revelation 11 when John is told to measure God's temple he's being asked to number God's people. We saw something very similar back in chapter 7 and the significance is again the Lord knows those who are his. God knows the length and breadth and height and depth of his people and they're secure. All of them are. But then look again at verse two. John is told to exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. The word Gentiles here could be translated nations. And that seems to be best because this is not about Jew versus Gentile in this context. It's about all God's people Versus the nations of the world who oppose God's people. In a moment we'll think about this mention of the holy city. But first we need to ask, what about this outer court? Well, although this is a picture of God's people, it's modeled on the temple in Jerusalem. That temple had several different courtyards. At the center were some places only the priests could go. The most holy place and the holy place. But then as things went further away from the center of the temple, ordinary worshippers could enter those places. And so some people have read this statement in verse 2 and thought, well, if this is a reference to God's people, then maybe the outer court means those who seem to belong to God's people, but they don't Really? Maybe this is talking about people who act like believers but in fact they're false believers. Some people have thought that but I don't think that's the right understanding here. Mainly because the outer court was still considered part of God's temple. It wasn't a place for fake worshippers. It was for true worshippers. And the nations who are trampling the temple don't care about false believers. They're going after true believers. So here, it's true believers who are being given into the hands of their enemies. And that should make us ask, but I thought they were secure. Wasn't that the point of verse 1? And the answer is yes. Verse 1 did assure us God's people are measured and secure. God will keep them. Their destiny is assured. And verse 2 tells us, in this life, those same secure people may face suffering. That's the truth behind this picture of the inner and outer court. We're being told that our outer court, our bodies, might take a beating from the brokenness of this world and the rage of God's enemies. They might trample us. We might be deprived of material things. But our inner court, our eternal souls, are untouchable. Our souls are safe in God's care. And wasn't that the point of, that we read in Romans chapter 8 earlier? Remember that passage Paul spoke about trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. God's people are not exempt from any of those things. But, Paul asked, can those things separate us from the love of Christ? Those things might trample us But can they also reach deeper and actually harm our souls? Can they snatch our future hope away from us as God's people? Paul's answer to that was, no way. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the outer court of our lives may take a bashing in this life but the inner court is secure. And that's in line with what Paul wrote in another place. He said, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Those who belong to Christ are eternally secure. We cannot lose the things that truly matter. And we may suffer in this life. We may lose plenty of other things in this life. In a moment we'll think about the 42 months that are mentioned in verse 2. But before that you may be wondering why when we've been talking about God's people as a temple, why does the word city appear in verse 2? The short answer is this is another way of referring to the temple. The end of Revelation describes the new heaven and earth as a city that's also a temple. You'll have noticed by now, Revelation loves to describe one thing in several different ways. For example, Jesus has been described in this book as the lion who is the lamb. So we'll hear more about this temple city later on in the book. For now, it's enough to know we're dealing with two ways of describing the same thing. Verses 1 and 2 present us with the temple city, showing us that the witnessing church is secure, yet suffering. That is often the situation of the church throughout history. But then in verse 3, the picture John sees changes. The voice from heaven, which is apparently God's voice, says in verse 3, I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. We might ask, is there any background in Scripture that can help us understand this reference to God's two witnesses? Well, yes, there is. Back in the Old Testament law, God laid down this law in the book of Deuteronomy. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is restated several times in the Old Testament. And it's a principle that comes up surprisingly often in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it several times. The Apostle Paul quotes it several times. And it also appears in the book of Hebrews. The need for two witnesses. And this principle was at least one of the reasons why Jesus sent his disciples out preaching, not in ones, but in twos. Each pair of disciples provided an adequate witness to the message. And when people rejected their message, those people were condemned because of the double witness of the disciples. So with that biblical background, then we can ask, who are these two witnesses in Revelation 11? And surely the answer is, the two witnesses are the witnessing church throughout history. The point is, the church's witness is sufficient for men and women to believe. People don't need messages appearing in the sky. God has provided the witnessing church. And if people refuse to believe, the witness of the church is sufficient to condemn those people. So the point here is not that we're to try and think of two individual people. The focus is on the power and authority of the witnessing church as a whole. God uses the witnessing church to bring men and women to faith. And it's equally true That on the final judgment day God will point to that same witness of the church and he will say to unbelievers you have no excuse. The witness of the church condemns you. You refuse to listen to the church as it proclaimed my word to you. The two witnesses show that the witnessing church has authority and power. Here in verse 3, the witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. That's a symbol of mourning. Back in chapter 10, John, you remember, experienced bitterness as he was commissioned to be a witness. And the sackcloth seems to be another way of saying the same thing. Even as we delight to serve God, we mourn too over those who are lost and those who don't care that they're lost. Verse 3 says this ministry of witnessing will go on for 1,260 days. And remember verse 2 told us the temple city would be trampled for 42 months. Now if your mass is as bad as mine and mine is pretty bad, the connection might not be obvious between those two numbers. But in fact, 42 months is 1,260 days using an idealized month of 30 days. Another way of expressing that would be three and a half years. And what we find is the book of Revelation uses all three ways of talking about the same period of time. We'll see that in chapters to come. But that does raise two questions. Why choose this specific period of time? Why three and a half years and not four years or ten years? And then another question, what's the significance of the time period anyway? What about the first question? Why choose this specific period of time? Well, as you would expect, there have been lots of suggestions about this. Things in biblical history have been suggested or things in history outside the Bible that lasted for three and a half years. It's very hard to be sure which one lies behind this. It may even be several different things. On balance, I think the most likely reason for mentioning this particular time period is because that was roughly the period of Jesus' ministry on earth. And it was the length of the most famous period in Elijah's ministry in the Old Testament. I think a connection is being made with the ministries of Jesus and Elijah. I may be wrong, but to me that seems the most likely explanation. So then what about the second question? What's the significance of this period of time? Maybe it's making a connection with Jesus and Elijah, but what does it mean? Well, I think there is a straightforward answer to that question. This period of time stands for the church's ministry in the midst of suffering. The church doesn't always suffer, but the 42 months and 1,260 days and three and a half years stand for those times when the church is suffering, it's being trampled. And the message is, even in those times, the witness of the church has authority and power. Maybe especially in those times, it has authority and power. Certainly in the following verses, the church's authority and power is described for us in pretty striking ways. Look again at verse 4. They, that's the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. All of this is developed from the Old Testament. And some of it has appeared already in Revelation. Back in chapter 1, we were introduced to the lampstand as a picture of the church. The seven lampstands represented the church in its completeness throughout the world and throughout history. Here, the two lampstands represent the witnessing church. What about the olive trees? Well, the kind of lamps we're talking about didn't run on electric. They run on oil. Oil is the fuel that keeps them burning. And that oil comes from olive trees. Verse 4 is picking up on a vision Zechariah had in the Old Testament. He saw a lampstand that was supplied by oil from two olive trees. They were pumping oil to the lamp. And in Zechariah's vision, that picture represented God's people being fueled by God's Holy Spirit for the work they had to do. But here you'll notice the two parts of Zechariah's vision come together. John sees two lampstands that are two olive trees, like the lion, who's also the lamb, like the temple that's also a city. What's the significance? Why take the two parts of Zechariah's vision and put them together? The significance simply is that God's Holy Spirit is now dwelling within his church. We've seen that already. We don't need some external power supply to be piped in. We have the Holy Spirit among us, within us. He is our ever-present power supply. Please don't worry if some of these details are passing you by. Because they're all ways of stressing really one basic point. The witnessing church has authority and power. Verses 5 and 6 describe that power in action. We're told fire comes from the witnesses' mouths. They have power to shut up the heavens and turn water into blood and bring other plagues. Again, this is picking up material from the Old Testament. Especially the plagues that fell on Egypt during the ministry of Moses. And also the drought that came upon Israel during Elijah's ministry. And all of this adds up to a very different picture from the opening verses of chapter 11. There, the church was being trampled. Here, the church is powerful. But there's no contradiction in the two pictures. The point is the church may be physically and numerically weak and despised. But the church's word has power. Because it's God's word. That's why verse 5 talks about fire coming from the witnesses' mouths. That's where the church's authority and power is. It doesn't come from her numbers or her finances or her influence in society or in politics. The church's authority comes from the word she proclaims. That is what changes human hearts. That's what brings new life to dead sinners. And all of that powerful work goes on even while the church is being trampled. This strength and weakness is something we saw in Jesus' messages to the seven churches in chapters two and three. Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. He said to the church in Philadelphia, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. And Jesus said, I will make even some of your opponents come and worship Jesus because of your witness. Revelation 11 is underlining that same paradox. The fact that the church often has no power in human terms, but that its witness always has life-changing power. And for those who reject the church's witness, it has condemning power. Remember what the risen Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 20. We looked at this on Easter Sunday morning. He said to his disciples, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus was talking about the power of the church's witness. We have authority to say to men and women, if you repent and believe this good news about the Savior who died in your place, then your sins are forgiven. But if you reject this good news, your sins are not forgiven. Maybe as we read verse 6, you were wondering, should we be praying for drought Or for plagues to fall on the earth? The rest of Revelation answers that question. God Himself, we're told, may send those kind of judgments. They may come as part of His wrath throughout history. And they may come because God's people are being persecuted. That may be how God responds to the cries of His people by hurling judgment on His people's enemies. And in that sense, then, plagues and so on may fall because of us. But our job is to witness, it's not to call down judgment. And as we witness, things may seem to get worse for us. That's what the next verses show us. Verse 7. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of that great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. This section picks up something we saw in chapter 9. In chapter 9, a powerful figure was given the key to the abyss, the realm of demons. And that angel of the abyss was given permission by heaven to torment God's enemies. And chapter 9 was very clear. The armies that come from the abyss could only harm those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, they couldn't harm God's people, those who belonged to Christ. But here... The beast from the abyss attacks, overpowers, and kills God's people. So we have to ask, has the situation changed? Has somebody moved the goalposts? No, nothing has changed. What we're seeing here is what we saw in verses 1 and 2. God's people may suffer. We may be trampled in various ways. We may even be killed. But it's okay. Nothing worse can happen to us. We may hear that and laugh. But there is something worse than death. Separation from God would be worse than death. But that can't happen to God's people. Romans 8, again, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When it comes to the things that truly matter, The things that matter eternally, God's people are secure. Those things are untouchable. Martin Luther was a Christian man who, for many years, lived in fear of losing his physical life. He woke up every day with that possibility. But he wrote during that time let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill God's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever. Martin Luther knew he may lose his life but he couldn't lose the things that last forever. the following verses go on to talk about public ridicule for God's people in the great city. What is the great city? Well, the book of Revelation has been called a tale of two cities. The city of God and the city of man in its opposition to God. The city of man is not just one particular city. Throughout history, it's just about every city at one time or another. It's any place where God's word and his people are despised. And here we're given a couple of examples. Sodom, probably the most notoriously evil city of all time. And Egypt, the place of slavery for God's people in the Old Testament. And the reference to Egypt shows the city of man doesn't have to be a city. Elsewhere in Revelation, the city of man is called Babylon. In John's day, it would have been Rome, representing the Roman Empire and its oppression of God's people. A few decades before John wrote, the city of man was Jerusalem, where the Lord was crucified. And that little phrase in verse 8 is the key, really, to the whole chapter. It tells us the suffering church follows in the footsteps of its suffering Savior. Look at the parallels between verse 10 and Jesus' own experience. Verse 10 says the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. The New Testament Gospels tell us that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, passers-by hurled insults at him. The religious leaders mocked him as he hung on the cross. Why? Why were they gloating and celebrating his death? Simply because his message had tormented them. You see that if you read through the Gospels. What Jesus said drove them crazy. He called self-righteous people hypocrites. He claimed to be the only one who could forgive sin. He claimed those who weren't with him were going to hell. He said only those who were with him could go to heaven. No one gets there except through me, Jesus said. People don't like to hear that sort of thing. when people think that they're really pretty good and when they love the sin that they're engaged in, then the gospel message is tormenting. That was the case with Jesus' own witness and it's the same for the church. Sometimes people find the church's message so distasteful that the church gets crushed. Like Jesus. That's the picture of verses 7 to 10. But it's not the whole picture. Because Jesus did not stay crushed. This section as a whole shows us death and resurrection like Jesus. The witnessing church wins when it appears to have lost. Verse 11. But, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The three and a half days here may be making a connection to the time between Jesus' death and resurrection. On Good Friday, he appeared utterly defeated. But on Sunday, he rose, having conquered sin and death. And here we're promised the church will rise too. And because the last trumpet is blown at this time, we are to take this as the resurrection at the end of time, a place we've been to several times already in this book. 1 Corinthians says, At the last trumpet, the dead will be raised, imperishable. 1 Thessalonians says, At the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's a consistent picture throughout the New Testament the last trumpet is the end. Those who died in Christ, whether that was through natural death or through martyrdom, those men and women will rise to eternal life. But we're also told that accompanying that joy for God's people, there will be terror for those outside of Christ. We saw that before at the end of chapter 6 as the rich and the mighty, the slave and the free call to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Here the picture is the same. We're told that not everyone will be killed immediately in the upheavals of that last day. Those who are not will give glory to the God of heaven. But this is not the willing praise that comes from believers. It's the begrudging praise that God's enemies are forced to give. This is the scene described in the book of Philippians, the day when every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's enemies forced to bow the knee. Forced to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And alongside all that, there is praise in heaven. Look again at verse 15. There were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. An earthquake and a severe hailstorm. Verse 11 closes with a reminder. As the gates of heaven swing wide open to receive God's people. Judgment is falling on those outside. As the church enters eternal joy, the rest enter eternal wrath. But that day hasn't come yet. And until that day comes, we have a gospel to proclaim. We have good news For the world. And if we have turned from our sin to Christ, then we are secure. No power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. We are secure and we we may well suffer in some way for our witness to Christ. In some times, in some places, the church is trampled right to the point of death. For us, it might take the form of being sneered at or excluded from some things, denied some opportunities maybe. And that can be hard. We like to be liked, don't we? We like to be included. We have to be prepared to lose some things for Christ. And we also need to realize the authority and power we've been given. God's word makes things happen. It often brings opposition, but it brings life too. Sometimes that means there are mass conversions. It happens sometimes. Most of the time it means ones and twos coming to Christ. But we mustn't ever belittle that. It's a miracle when our witness brings even one spiritually dead person to life through faith in Christ. And as we see the church being trampled severely in some parts of the world today, as we see that happening, let's remember Jesus on the cross. Let's remember he won a great victory on the cross. And let's remember that like Jesus, the church that's faithful in its witness will win. It will win even when it appears to have lost. As we close our time together, we have an opportunity to recommit ourselves to Christ and recommit ourselves to being His witnesses. We're going to sing a song that's